Okay, I'll get started. So I'm Abigail Williams and I have this newly created job of Knowledge Exchange Fellow for the Humanities in Oxford, which is such an absurd mouthful that I can hardly remember what it is when I introduce myself. But basically my job is about encouraging other academics to engage with the wider world and whether in the form of public engagement or what's now called knowledge exchange but basically communicating their research to wider audiences beyond a purely scholarly audience. But I'm also a quite um, straightforward traditional academic and my story about how I've come to do this is that so I'm quite a traditional Oxford product. I did at my undergraduate course here and my doctorate here and then I did uh, worked on poetry and politics in the 18th century and did some editing and then I started doing a digital project, a database, which I'll talk about a, li a little bit in a little bit. And from there I started to develop the um, public-facing aspects of that work and I got more and more interested in that and in talking to other people about how it worked for them um, or could work better for them. And so I ca came to end up talking in situations like this to groups of people about how they might do it. And what I'm really going to be speaking about today is introducing the idea of this kind of um, wider kind of communication and reciprocity with different kinds of audiences and giving some examples of how that might work and what you might get out of it. So um, I'm going to start off with a slide that is a word cloud. I asked my students to give me words that they associated with academics and just off the top of their heads, and this is what they came up with. Uh, so I was a little bit depressed by this. I mean, they, you know, first of all, I thought, this is about me. Um, and then I, you know, we started to talk about some of those words, but you can see, so you know how these things work, the bigger the word, the more times they said it. So there's a whole cluster of associations there around kind of inwardness and a kind of slight inability to communicate with the wider world, stuffiness, reservedness, unworldliness, madness. Um, but along with that, a couple of positives, like well-read and interesting. And I'm guessing that none of us in this room particularly want to be characterized as eccentric in big letters, odd in big letters, or pedantic in big letters all of the time. Um, and one of the benefits, it seems to me, of of public engagement or knowledge exchange or working in this in this kind of wider world is that you can start to kind of counter those stereotypes and engage more in the world um, and those kinds of ideas about eccentricity and oddness we don't have to be like that and we don't have to seem to be like that. Um, I'm going to show you now some slides of and one of the things that's interesting for me I should backtrack one of the things that's interesting to me about this little exercise about making the word cloud is that it reminds me of all the ways, so I work on early 18th century poetry and satire. And if any of you are familiar with that period, with the satires of um, Jonathan Swift and Alexander Pope, you'll know they're absolutely stuffed with satires of pedants and dried up men who just spend their whole time with their noses in books studying dead beetles and arcane bits of Latin etymology. And they're mocked for being really, really unworldly and dried up. And like here we've come to the early 21st century and hey, nothing seems to have really changed. That the idea of the scholar is associated with kind of nose in a book, can't really see the wood for the trees. Um, so that's, we don't, yeah, it seems to me that that doesn't have to be the case, but there is a strong association of those kinds of values with scholarship. And if you look at pictures of the scholars, 
um, of scholars back through the ages, you can see that kind of idea of isolation reiterated. So this is a 13th century um, manuscript. Here we see a scholar on their own. Here we see a 17th century Dutch picture of a scholar on their own. And here is a portrait of um, my late colleague Tony Nuttall, who was at New College. And here you can see, I mean, it's a lovely painting, but he's again on his own. The picture, the story is all about him at his desk with his papers or climbing up his ladder to access his books. It's all about him being by himself. And um, that seems to me not really, I mean, a lot of academia, a lot of the kind of research that we do is actually about the kind of productive conversations we have with one another. It's not entirely about sitting on your own, but there's a dominance of this image of a lone scholar that it seems important to me to, to challenge and to question. And looking outwards um, more creatively is one way of doing that. Um, so just to, I've been, you probably have heard of some of the kind of terms that are going to be used over the course of this week. And I thought it would be useful to start off at the beginning by saying what they are. I know you've not, you've come from all over the place, but within the UK, the debate about public engagement or um, non, n um, speaking not exclusively to scholarly audience has focused around something which has been called impact. And there's been a lot of um, argument and debate about impact. So because for the first time, I'm probably telling lots of you things that you already know, but um, the debate around, for the first time this year, we're having a research assessment exercise, which means that the public impact of the research that you do is going to count as part of the measurement of a department or a university's um, research output, which is a big shift away from just counting books and, monograph and monographs and articles. So that's really changed the landscape of research in this country. But it's also, I think, an increasing pressure on justification of public funding for higher education and research has meant that there's more and more pressure to show the benefit of what we do and to show it outside of the academic community. So impact is the word used for this whole me uh, measurement process that's happening, which is essentially retrospective, OK? So that just means masses of form filling this year and last year to create retrospective narratives of the kind of effect you've had on the outside world with your research. And so for a lot of people, they just have an allergic reaction to the word impact, which makes it very difficult to talk about any of the other, these ideas without people <laughs> um, and needing some kind of um, treatment. So there's impact, which is about looking backwards and measuring what you've done. And you might also have you heard the term, um, and I've used it, public engagement, which is about communicating your work to audiences outside of academia, but in a kind of slightly one-way street kind of way. So if you go to Cheltenham Literary Festival and give a talk about your work, then uh, that might be called public engagement, but it might not be called knowledge exchange. And the thing, the kind of concept or the term that the money's on at the moment is knowledge exchange, which is really about the kind of two-way relationship between researchers and the wider world. Uh, it's about what, the, what other people get from the research that we do and what we get from our engagements with the wider world. So it's a, it's a kind of two-way street rather than just a one-way thing where we just go and do show and tell at the world and go, aren't we clever and interesting? So knowledge exchange is really about that two-way thing. And I'll give you an example in a bit of how, of the difference between public engagement and knowledge exchange. But I think it's really important to emphasize that 
public engagement often leads to knowledge exchange. Nobody's going to want to exchange anything with you unless they know who you are and what you're doing and what you're about. So actually, you often have to go out into the world to work out what the world might want from you and what you might want from the world. And obviously, the world can mean lots and lots and lots of different things. But, and I guess, in a way, perhaps the most immediate thing for lots of you is going to be that if you're working on digital projects, there will be some element of social media or online um, impact that you're trying to make or interested in making. But I'll be giving examples of a whole range of things. And I know that you'll be studying different ways of, over the course of this week, looking at all sorts of different ways in which we might translate what we do into um, a broader context. So uh, moving on. So I put this on here because I kind of, this is a person who's only a head and a brain and doesn't seem to have any rest of their body. and. I think that goes back to the whole idea of do we really just want to be eccentric pedants speaking to no one? I mean, nobody really wants to be a brain on a stick. And I think the great thing for me, I mean, it's quite nice, but there's the whole rest of you and your, your connectedness to the world. And I think that one of the best things about this connecting through public engagement or knowledge exchange is that it enables the whole of you to c relate to what you do. I don't know about you, but my family have no work, they have no idea what I do. They have no. I mean, they know what my job is, but they don't know what I'm going to go back and do in the Bodleian this afternoon, nor do they care, which is not a slight on them. It's just that, you know, you specialise and you specialise and specialise to the point where it's pretty difficult for anyone to, other than a little world to understand what it is that you do. And this engaging with the world business is a good way of reconnecting back so that actually, I mean, it's just great that your mum can say, I heard you on the radio, or, you know, you can go and work with your kids in a primary school, or whatever it is, that actually some of what you do starts to make sense of the other people in your life who aren't in the little nano circle of early 18th century literature specialists or whatever it is that you do. So don't just be a brain on a stick. Um, obviously, if you're engaged in research, you're already engaging in a scholarly context. And some of the issues to think about is just what the differences are. So you're, it's not like you are just a brain on a stick on your own in the lab. You're talking to one set of people. but that you'll be talking to, other, uh, talking to a kind of broader public or different community groups or whatever it is involves a different set of skills and expectations. So part of what you're doing is learning to renegotiate those expectations or what forms of communication are meaningful and helpful. Um, I talked a little bit about why now. Why, you know, why is it here that in 2013 we are having a stream on cultural connections as part of this summer school? That's partly because of it's partly because of the increased government pressure to prove the impact of what we do and also because of things like open access publishing that there's just more and more emphasis on getting your stuff out there and um, the web just makes what we do accessible to a much broader range of people than if you're just if, if your only outlets are journal articles or scholarly conferences it's actually possible to articulate and get your research to a wider world um, uh, much more easily now I think in terms of what it can add to what we do, um, when I'm talking to early career researchers or graduate students, I'd say that one of the things that I would most emphasize in their job um, applications or um, kind of job talks is emphasizing the so what factor of what you do. Like no one is going to give you a job or any money to do anything unless you can explain why, what, that, what is the point of doing what you're doing and what is its distinctive characteristic that makes it work worth funding or makes you worth backing. 
And there is nothing like having to speak to a room of 50 random strangers who have no innate interest in the e.g. 18th century or 13th century or whatever it is to make you realise the so what factor of what you're doing. So just for sharpening up your sense of how you tell a story about your research and how you make it mean something to other people who have no basic reason to be interested in it or care about it is incredibly good for you. Um, the other thing I'd emphasise is that it brings us new skills. I've learned a lot of things some of which I don't particularly want to know, but I've learned lots of new things um, as part of um, working in theatres and in schools and in museums and stuff. Just in terms of part of, I think storytelling is a big part of it, just how you make a narrative out of what you're doing that is compelling and makes sense of lots of little bits, because we're often very good at the details, but not so good at the turning that into a story that actually makes sense. And we know how to value detail in other people, but if you're coming from a different set of expectations, detail is not always the thing you're going to get off on. It will be the bigger picture. So um, another real benefit of thinking about this broader communication is that just the ability to think a little bit laterally about what you do. So not just thinking, what do I want to find out? How will I find it out? But how many groups of people might be interested in what I'm doing? And what ways can I make it accessible? And that, for me, was so exciting as a just really different way of thinking about my research and going, oh, it could go here. Well, actually, I do do a bit about sport, and maybe that will da 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 And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, I spoke about knowledge exchange and the importance of reciprocity and of the sharing of the benefits of research. And I guess I'd emphasize that quite strongly now, that um, actually seeing that people can get not just be interested, but get something out of something of real benefit out of the kind of research you do, and that you can get real benefit out of them, is amazingly kind of empowering in terms of your research career. Just because sometimes you do get a kind of, what am I doing writing these footnotes that no one's ever going to read? And the sense of benefit makes a real difference. And finally, I'd say, not finally, but finally, just in terms of the kind of why should I do it and what are the skills, this is not going to be something for everyone, but there are so many different ways of communicating with the world that whether you do it through your blog or whether you do it by working in a school or whether you do it by making a radio program or whether you do it by going into a relationship with an IT entrepreneur or whether you do it by working with local government. There are going to be different things to suit different kinds of skill sets and personalities and different projects. And it's a big world, that whole world of speaking to the world, you know? Um, so although you might feel panicked by some of the things I'm about to show you, you don't have to do those. You can do it your way. So if I show you now some examples, oh, I thought this was good. This is basically what it's about, this whole idea of exchanging, that why keep your brilliant idea about how to boil a kettle and not turn it into a steam engine. Um, so here's an example of something called Science Cafe at Bath University, where this was about um, research into some kind of 3D visual perception. And it's a kind of form of crowdsourcing, so which you've probably heard of, which is where you get your audience or your online audience to participate in the kind of research you're doing so that they feed back. Uh, so that's one way of making that mutuality thing work. And here I've got a picture of this I find slightly scary. So this is something called Bright Club, which is at University College London, where young academics and postdocs get up and turn their research into stand-up comedy, which for some people will seem like an amazing thing. I mean, I kind of think, if you can 
turn your research into stand-up, you can do it. You can teach anything, can't you? I mean, really, that must take the fear, fear out of every situation where you're faced with a bunch of kind of blank-faced 18-year-olds or whatever it is. Um, so that's Bright Club at UCL, and this is a storytelling session, I think, at Sheffield. So these are people learning to tell stories and the kind of various kinds of skills that that involves, which is beyond going once upon a time at the beginning which for some of those people is going to be a challenge, right? To stand in a weird office room waving their hands in the air. But I think, I don't know if that's what you will. <laughs> um, so yeah, there are, there are different things to learn, but they will serve you well later on, I think. I've certainly found that, that the stuff I've needed to learn has then been really useful to me in terms of just the straightforward academic stuff I do, like giving conference papers and lecturing. So I'm going to talk a little bit now about my own digital project and how that turned into knowledge exchange, just as a way, just as a kind of case study to, to talk you through that. So I started off by doing this thing called the Digital Miscellanies Index. So I got a big grant from the Levy Hume to make a database, but it wasn't anything which had any text content. It was all metadata. It was, so it's an online um, first line index of 18th century poetry which no one had really read. These are popular poetic collections, and what we're doing is just cataloguing the contents of all of them in order to find out more about reception and authorship in the 18th century. And I started doing this because I wrote a book about poetry and politics in the 18th century, and it was all about saying this particular group of writers, Whig writers, have got left out of literary history and what happened to them. And my, the argument of the book is to go, but everyone was reading at the time. They were reading all this stuff and they thought it was fantastic. And then I read the first review, which said, this is OK, but you know, she hasn't really explained what happened to them afterwards. How did they go from being really, really popular at the beginning of the 18th century to really unpopular by the end of the 18th century? And I thought, well, fair point, but how dare you? Because um, that would take so much work, because these poems were published in separate um, in collections separately, right? You couldn't just look up an author's work. They were published in these miscellanies, these popular anthology things. So to see what had happened to a particular poem, you'd have to open up each one of 12 or 1500 miscellanies for the whole of the 18th century, count the occurrence of the poem, and then shut the book again and open another one. Um, so, and then I thought, but if you made all that stuff into a database, then you'd be able to do that in about two seconds. So that led from quite a, a research, quite trad research question. It had a kind of digital answer. Um, which proved, has proved very kind of satisfying and interesting just in, in terms of pure academic scholarly output. But the more I got into doing this project and the more of these miscellanies I looked at, the more I thought how bonkers it was that I was just doing a really geeky scholarly first line index with material that looked like this. So lots of these collections are really about having fun at home with your friends. They're kind of kits for enjoying yourself. So this is a kind of DIY kit for kind of difficult evenings with Aunt Agatha. Um, you know, it got dark really early in the olden days. And so this is the newest, drollest, queerest, completest, most comical, most facetious and best collection ever offered to the inhabitants of Great Britain and Ireland. And it's got jokes and jests and stories and sayings and bon mots and repartee and waggeries and puns. This isn't something to be taken super seriously uh, you know, and read with reverence. It's not a kind of the history, um, the kind of Oxford Anthology of English Verse. It's stuff for having fun with. Some of it's rude, some of it's set to music. It's there to enable you to have a good time. And there are pictures showing you how to have a good time on the frontispieces. So here are some guys with their punch party. Um, 
and their pipes, and they are laughing and being not that fat, but maybe it's, it's 18th century, maybe you couldn't get that fat in the 18th century. Um, so they're enjoying themselves because of the book they've got in front of them. So at the same time as doing this first line index, I started to think about how you might develop this into something which, you know, we could kind of test out, does this enable you to have fun? Because that seems like part of the, you know, Part of the point of looking at all these books surely isn't just to measure how many cat poems there are in 1753 published in Scotland, but also to retrieve the whole world of these collections. And retrieving the whole world meant more than just looking at the metadata. So I started to think laterally and creatively about how I might do that. Um, so I thought about the ways in which you might associate these collections with places. And so I worked with some musicians and did a performance at York Early Music Festival using um, Yorkshire songs and poems from the collections. And then I did um, some stuff in Shoreditch in London um, at the Jeffrey Museum, which I'll talk about. Another way of looking at these collections was through themes. So one theme that um, came up again and again was sport, and it was the Olympics. So we did something as part of a music festival which had an Olympic theme last year. Um, there were also a good place for showcasing a lot of this material was in literary heritage sites, so like Samuel Johnson's house, Lawrence Stern's house, Jane Austen's house. These were some people who all use these collections, and there are dedicated heritage sites developed, devoted to them, so that seemed like a good place to plop it in, and so to speak. Um, and then it seemed to me that a lot of this material was also related to collections, like uh, in the Bodleian or Chawton House Library, which is a library of 18th century women's writing in Hampshire. So can you see how it just was like a bit like a spider diagram that I started off with miscellanies in the circle, in the middle of the circle, and then just thought about all the ways in which they might se make sense to different constituencies and in different ways. And I found that bit really fun, except that there were all, as always with a spider diagram, just way too many lines coming out, which you then have to pull together to, into some kind of sensible and deliverable whole. So here are some of the things that I did. We did an evening at the Bodleian Library based around this Chicagoan um, collector of jazz, mu uh, jazz, mu jazz musician and collector of most of the books that make up the contents of this collection, who was called Walter Harding. So what was happening there was that there was a kind of shelf mark on the, you know, all the miscellanies we were looking at that just said Harding, and then by tracing that back to the person who'd given the books, found there was a really interesting story. But I don't know anything about jazz in you know, Chicago in the 1930s, but I uncovered that story as part of the process of doing this digital archive. And that turned out to be really interesting, and we found some of his music and played stuff he'd composed, as well as retrieving that whole world of kind of biblio bibliophilia. And then we did a performance at this tiny little Georgian theatre in Richmond in North Yorkshire, which was again about taking a miscellany and just performing it in front of a really small audience and seeing how that worked. And I talked earlier about this mutuality business and giving stuff back, having an exchange with people. And I think there it was quite measurable what they were getting back in terms of the fact that what we did was to take a playbill which had been kicking around in a drawer in the museum of the theatre and then perform the stuff on the playbill, so the playbill's from 1814, perform it, and they hadn't, that stuff hadn't been performed in that theatre since 1814. I think it was a real sense of, it was a day which was partly about local composers, it was a real sense of kind of local pride in, look, this is what we did, this is what happened here, um, because it's a setting which is most, this theatre, although it looks really beautiful in 18th century, usually has tribute bands and, you know, little kind of, just uh, for commercial reasons, it doesn't normally have period fare in it, so taking some of that stuff back there and making it work in that context worked really well for both of us. Um, 
I also worked with the Jeffrey Museum of the Home, which is this small museum in East London, which is a museum of domestic interiors. And lots of the material that I was looking at was performed in domestic interiors. And this was quite an interesting phenomenon for me, this relationship with the Jeffrey Museum, because I just completely fell in love with it. I went there and just loved it all. I loved all the little sitting rooms. I loved it all set out. I loved the kind of way in which it showed. So it showcased the sitting room of a middle class home through from 1590 to 2010 in lots of separate little almshouse things. I just, just completely was smitten with the whole thing. So I wrote to them and said, Dear Jeffrey Museum, uh, I'm so keen and I work on 18th century domesticity and I'd love to come work with you. And they didn't write back and then I wrote to them again and they didn't write back and they didn't write back and they didn't write back. And then after about four goes, they did write back and said, oh, I suppose we could meet for tea. And I couldn't believe they were so unkeen on me because I was so keen on them. But um, so then I went and I met them for tea. And then it became clear to me why they hadn't written back, which was that, so they're this small museum. They're in quite a deprived part. Well, bits of it are quite deprived in East London. They're very good at doing outreach and at connecting with the local community. So that ticks lots of boxes for people who are wanting to show the wider impact of their research. So basically every academic writes to them and says, I love you, can I come and work with you? And what they mean is, can I just come and do a talk about my work at you so that I can then tick the box of connecting with a local community and then go back to my university. And they, did, they were sick of that, they didn't want any more of that. But I had not done quite enough preparation to know what I wanted to do there. So I said, I don't know what I want to do, what do you want to do? And that actually went down really well because then they said, oh, well, what we're really interested in is the history of reading, we don't know how to showcase our books or turn them into anything which is meaningful for a wider public. So my own slight cluelessness about what I might do there turned out to be really good because then we actually did have a relationship where they got what they wanted. They got a bit of my expertise and they got a bit of me translating something I knew a lot about into something that could make sense to a wider group of people. And I got to see how my books might work in the context of jars of ginger and particularly uncomfortable chairs or not enough light. And that was all that was all just really productive. So, for example, I learnt things. I'd, so I did um, a performance there, which was a candlelit evening um, in the 18th century. So they said, we've got to do the candlelit thing. Everyone loves candlelit. And so we turned off all the lights and lit loads of tea lights, more lights than there would have been in an 18th century room. And it was so dark, so unbelievably dark. And we're trying to get them to drink alcohol and sew a sampler and sing <laughs> and answer riddles and the musicians to sing, all by the light of these tea lights, and no one could see. And you realise what good multitaskers they must have been in the 18th century. And even after we turned some lights on, it was still pretty impossible. So I learned something quite important about that, which is, of course, people had to read out aloud in the olden days, because there's no way they could have seen their books, not even with 20 tea lights, a light in the room. So I hope that gives an example of the difference between, you know, of how, how actually institutions or the kind of people you work with might not want you to just talk at them and actually everyone can get something back from from the two-way aspect of it and then I did I also worked in a primary school um, at the end of my road where my children go and that was about taking the miscellanies which are for children and seeing if they can work um, some of the kind of games and exercises in them can work and that was really fun too and I think the point that I'd make about that is that that's something I found quite easy because I've got two small, quite two quite small children. But for other of my colleagues, it would be absolutely horrifying and horrendous. And they would rather speak in front of 50,000 people at Wembley than they would go into primary school and deal with some year twos. And it's basically, it's just horses for courses. You know, you should do what you feel comfortable with and what is what you feel you've got the skills to do 
I don't think that the point of this week is for you to go away feeling harassed and bullied into doing stuff that really feels a very long way from your comfort zone. But I think that all of us have got stuff that we feel happy with um, and that just running with that and chucking a bit of enthusiasm at that can go a long way. So I talked, uh, the, well, the title of my talk was about, or the subtitle was about, part of it was about creativity and I hope I've shown some of the ways in which just thinking a little bit creatively about what you do, going from super geeky digital humanities project to primary schools and um, working in museums wasn't that difficult. It was just about translating stuff I knew quite a lot about but was really enthusiastic about and talking about that as not assuming that people knew that much. Um, and another part, big part of um, the benefit of doing this is that connectedness thing. And I'd say one thing about my experience of having spoken with all these, you know, having talked about my research and now all these different public contexts, that normal people are so much easier than academic audiences. That, you know, when you, I don't know if you know, if you give an academic paper, you know, you speak for 20 minutes, you stop, you stop feeling nervous, your adrenaline's gone, it's fine, then you suddenly remember there's the questions. And you ha are at the edge of your knowledge. There is no more knowledge in your head other than what's in the paper. And then you've got to answer the questions. And the academics say things like, um, uh, I just wonder how that relates to that uh, article that was published in uh, 1956. Surely what he's arguing there is. And you're like, you know, because they basically know the answer to that question already, don't they? They're just asking you to make themselves look clever. But normal people don't ask questions like that. They ask questions like, were there dogs in the room when they did singing? Or what time did the children go to bed? Or how many candles did you think they had? And that's really liberating that you aren't always facing people who think they know more than you. They might ask you questions you don't know the answer to, but in a way, for me, that was great because I realised what I needed to know the answer to. So now I'm writing a book which is about how people enjoyed themselves at home because of all the people who said, what about the dogs and how many candles did they have and were they eating at the same time and blah, 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 blah. Um, so that was good. And then the last part of my title was about serendipity. I'm going to give you a quick example of some, something serendipitous. So this is a manuscript of one of John Donne's sermons, and this is part of a big editing project that's being done by somebody called um, Peter McCullough, who's at Lincoln College here. And so this is very traditional scholarship, you know, churning out big print volumes from, I think there's an online component, there is, but for OUP. And I went to a meeting with Peter, which was supposed to be about people explaining about how they'd done kind of outreach or knowledge exchange type work with their projects. And people were talking at the bit, a bit, bit at the beginning, and Peter was getting crotter, crotter and crotter and starting to sort of shake slightly and going a bit red with fury. And then he had this big burst out where he said, I hate all this stuff, I hate all this, I hate all this issue about accountability and impact. It's all about trying to turn the humanities into social sciences and why should we have to do that? What we do is what we do. Don't try to make me into something I'm not. So he did his outburst and then he started to talk about his project and how he'd been as part of so John Donne was the canon of St Paul's Cathedral in London, and um, or Dean of St Paul's, and how as part of doing the Dunn project, he'd got involved in St Paul's, and they'd invited him to be a lay canon or something, and then they'd got involved in doing some kind of public event at St Paul's around the idea of public speech and John Donne, and what it meant to be a kind of public moralist um, in a different age. And at the same time that that was happening, um, it was, this was happening at the same time, um, right outside of St. Paul's, uh, which is the Occupy movement. Sorry, I should have said that. So here was a big physical manifestation of, you know, using this iconic building as a center for public debate and the visibility of ethical and 
moral issues. And here was he, and John Donne was plugged right into the middle of that, and his editing project was. But that couldn't, no one could have predicted that that would happen at the same time and it would take on that new meaning. Um, so that's what I mean by serendipity. And then my last slide, I'm going to, it was really hot on Friday afternoon when I was doing this, and I became more frivolous as I got towards the end. So I thought a fitting slide for the end would be this concept of, so what I think is that it shouldn't feel like more work, okay, doing knowledge exchange or public engagement. It's about making more out of what you've got. So I have done one bit of research, which was an article, which was a museum exhibition, which was a public talk and radio program. I did all of those things out of the same thing. So that's like the whole one dress, work it three ways kind of phenomenon that you may be familiar with if you have ever looked at a women's magazine. And if you know the format of those articles, there's always some spurious calculation about how if you spend £500 on a dress and then wear it 50 times, that dress has only cost you £10 because it's per wear. And you might see that as a way of justifying the kind of research time you put into the projects that you do. It just makes your money or your effort or your intellectual capital go a hell of a lot further if you can make it work in all these different ways. So I'm going to close on that very frivolous note. Um, and if you've got any questions you'd like to ask, then please do.